and stand, please, and open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12. So we've already got two assignments when you leave church today. One of them, if you don't have somebody in mind, start praying about one person you want to disciple. One person that you can lead to Christ and disciple them to be a follower of Jesus. Start praying about that. Write that name down. Make that a prayer request every day. Somebody that you can disciple. Somebody that you can pour your life into. Christ has poured his life into you. And now it's our opportunity, our command to go and make disciples. That's so simple, isn't it? Second one is find 200 people to encourage this week. (laughs) I like that, Caleb. Find one person. I've already been encouraged by about five people this morning. Already. It's easy. And it's, it's simple. Now, the third thing that I want you to do this week, I want you to memorize Romans 12, 1 and 2. I think you can do that. Everybody's familiar with this passage. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service. And be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I want you to try to memorize that this week. This is the foundation for Christian living, these two verses. So simple and so packed with power that if you'll memorize it and you will do this, it will transform your Christian life. Go ahead and be seated. I just want to recognize a couple of folks that are here this morning that we haven't seen for a while. Um, so it's so good to see Julian and her crew and the encouragement that they gave me when I saw, especially Cadence. She was the first one I saw, and she came in and sat at the table, and she was just grinning from ear to ear. And then Chloe just gave me repeated hugs. So, man, I am encouraged. And then my lumberjack handshake with Brother Ben, that, that was encouraging. <laughs> uh, it's just good to be here. It's good to be with God's people. This passage, like I said, is such a profound, short little snippet of what the Christian life is all about. Um, let me just find my passage here. Okay, I've got it. Uh, if you like titles... I know Josh needs titles to put up on the website. But I I titled this God's Unfathomable Mercy. His mercy is beyond our comprehension. Oh, I forgot to introduce another person that we haven't seen for a while. That's my granddaughter here in front. So this is my first grandchild, my oldest son's oldest child. So... Better stop growing. She's already about six inches taller than her grandma. (laughs) But it's just, it's good to be here. Um, Good to see God's people. It's just, I'm encouraged just because we're all here. Um, Need to make another announcement. God has answered a prayer this week for our church. This is exciting. He shut the door for that piece of property. So we can praise God that he prevented us from going into something that we just didn't need to go into. Um, So that's a praise. The Lord knows what we need, and the Lord knew that that wasn't the best situation for our church. So we can thank God for that. Um, Now, let's get back into Romans chapter 12. I, I believe that this passage is the foundation for all Christian living. I really do. We've got some construction people in our church, or people who've attempted at construction. 
And we all know that the foundation probably, not probably, the foundation is the most critical, the most important part of any building project. Without the foundation, the rest of the building will eventually crumble. And the same thing in the Christian life. If our foundation is firm, and these verses really gird that foundation, our Christian life will explode. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Christ is the solid rock on which we build our lives. But how do we begin to build on that foundation? This is a part of the foundation. I really believe that. I believe that if we will apply these simple verses, apply them, not just know them, apply them, we will discover the secrets that unlock limitless possibilities for spiritual growth and spiritual usefulness. I talked to a brother this week on the phone whom God is using tremendously in little ways behind the scenes. And as I was talking with him on the phone, I was thinking about these passages. And I told this man, I said, the reason God is using you is because you are presenting yourself to him. God will use all those who make themselves available. I believe that. God will use all those who make themselves available for him to use. I remember watching certain Christian giants in my life. And I was wondering, why does God use them so much more than me? Do they have something that I don't have? And then I realized that this is what they had that I didn't have. They were totally surrendered to God. They were sold out. Those are the kind of people that God uses. I've written a phrase or a a sentence in my, my Bible here. Um, by D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody said, the world has yet to see what God can do with one individual who is sold out to him. You know, I, I think the Apostle Paul came pretty close to that. And we can see how God has used him I've been reading some excerpts from another man that that God profoundly used. He was a Chinese pastor, wrote a lot of different books under severe persecution right right after uh, Mao Zedong's takeover of China. Put in prison, then released. Got his freedom, came to America. Under conviction, went back was arrested again and tortured for his faith. But God will use people who will give themselves as living sacrifices. This is what God does. And what does Paul use to appeal to us to live that kind of life? It's God's mercy. God is appealing to us today through this passage of Scripture. He's appealing to us to surrender complete dedication to the Lord. And I know we'll never get there, but that doesn't keep us from striving to get there. One of the hardest songs to ever sing for me is, I Surrender All. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to Him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him. In His presence, daily live. And every time I sing that song, I say, Lord, I know I can't live up to that. But God, may that be my heart's desire. Paul said it like this, one thing, forgetting those things that are behind and pressing toward those things that are before, I look and impressed toward the high calling of Christ Jesus. 
And so we all can do that. God's mercy is paramount if we are going to surrender. We've got to understand how immense and immeasurable and how profound His mercy is because that will then motivate us to say, Lord, I want to give my life to you as a living sacrifice. When we understand his mercy, when we understand how much he has forgiven us, and not just forgiven us, how much he has given to us, he's imputed righteousness to us. He has justified us completely. We are viewed as righteous because of his mercy. And so Paul starts out this, I beseech you, by the mercies of God. And he starts out with the word, therefore. I exhort you, therefore. And so therefore is bringing us back to chapter 11. And so before we really get into these two verses, let's go back just to the preceding verses and look at how profound God's mercy is. In verses 30 through 36, we're going to read just, Two verses, then we'll stop, and then we'll read the rest of it. For as you were once disobedient, talking to the Gentiles, this is who you were. This is who you and I were. We were once disobedient. We were once under the wrath of God. We were children of disobedience, just as the rest of the world was, it tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. This is who we were. For you were once disobedient to God, yet, isn't that a powerful word? In spite of that, yet, yet you now have obtained mercy. And how did we retain mercy? How did we obtain it? And particularly, how did the Gentiles? It was through, this was the means, it was through their The word there is referring back to the Jewish people through their disobedience. And so Paul is putting a paradox for us. It is so profound. We received mercy who were disobedient and we received it through the disobedience of other people, through the Jewish people. A paradox of mercy. God used and still is using Israel's unbelief in order that Gentiles might believe. I I, I believe that God, through His providence, wants to bring as many people as possible to the faith and His receiving mercy. God providentially ordered the world to bring a maximum number of people to faith in Christ. God shows all people who He is, God has displayed it in the heavens. There's not a language. There's not a single people group that do not understand the glories of God. God has written on every single heart, every single conscience has the law of God written on their hearts. God is doing all that He can to bring mercy and forgiveness to a world that is lost. God has given everyone a law, either through the Ten Commandments or through the law of conscience, to show everyone that all have fallen short of the glory of God, every one of us. God has then set up a standard that is impossible for anybody to ever reach. And then God entered into space and time and he was crucified, and he died in our place to make salvation so simple and so easy. It is faith alone, it is by grace alone, and it is in Christ alone. The Gentiles who were outside of God's covenant people, he has now arranged it, and he is reiterating what he's already said, In verse 30, through their disobedience, 
You have retained mercy. He's doing this to remind the Gentile people how profound God is working throughout all of his creation. God's election of Israel. That's the question in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Has God's election of Israel, has it failed to accomplish what God intended? God elected Israel for the purpose of reaching the world for Christ. That was the purpose. Has their unbelief nullified God's sovereign plan for Israel? May it never be. Even through their disobedience, even through their rebellion, even through their rejection of their Messiah, God is still using Israel. You cannot confound God's plans. That's a wonderful message for us today. And His mercy is so great because that is His plan. The branches were broken off, you might say, in order that Gentiles might be grafted in. Romans eleven nineteen. Oh, the depths and the riches of his wisdom and his knowledge, Paul goes on to say. How past finding out they are that God would actually use a rebellious people, a people who rejected their Messiah, to spread the gospel even further. Now, in the same regard, the Gentiles have been shown mercy. And the mercying of the Gentiles, God is going to use it to win Jewish people back to their Messiah. How profound is that? What a paradox. Only God could think of something like this. God now is prompting the Jewish people by the Gentiles to look at the mercy that the Gentiles have received to make them jealous and want their Messiah. Israel's unbelief caused the gospel to go to the Gentiles. Gentiles' faith now is causing the Jewish people to come back to their Messiah. In Acts chapter 13, Paul says, after going to Antioch, going into the synagogue, and presenting the gospel to the Jewish people, and they reject it, he says, he and Barnabas waxed bold. And this is what they said. It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, Jewish people. But seeing you, Jewish people, put it from you, you have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. So we turn to the Gentiles. Now, why does he say we turn to the Gentiles? He says, for so hath God commanded us. And then he quotes Isaiah saying, I have set thee, talking about the Messiah, and Paul is now applying it to Israel, I have set thee for a light to the Gentiles. And here's the result, that you should be salvation. And where is this salvation to go? It is to go unto the ends of the earth. So the Gentiles' faith and their great mercy that they received was meant to prompt Jewish people to desire their own Messiah. Verse 31, even so, these also have now become disobedient so that through the mercy shown you, so the Jewish people become disobedient, showed mercy to the Gentiles in order that they also may obtain mercy. God, God wants to save as many as he can. This is his plan. This is his purpose. So God provides universal mercy because there is a universal need for this mercy. Verse 32. For God has committed them all to disobedience. And here's the purpose clause. That he might have mercy on all. Now, what does it mean that God has committed people to disobedience? It's almost like God has just resigned us that this is what the state that we're going to have to be in. And, and that is sort of the idea. But the word committed, has it's a, a fishing term. It means to enclose or to encapsulate. So what did God use 
to enclose or to encapsulate us. Paul uses the exact same phraseology in, in fact, the same verb in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 22. It says, for the scripture, and I'm using Old King James, has confined, committed, enclosed, encapsulated. The scripture has done this. It's enclosed us all under sin so that we might have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God has shown all of us that we are without hope. We have no chance of salvation other than Christ alone. He's committed us all. He's enclosed us all in this state of sinfulness. Why did he do that? So that he could have mercy on everyone. This is his plan. And then Paul just begins this praise, this doxology of worship because of God's grace. So let's read 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. His ways are past finding out. Who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it should be repaid to him? We owe God everything, and God owes us nothing. For of him, through him, and to him. Boy, that, that covers everything, doesn't it? To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, brethren, I beseech you. Because it's all this incredible mystery that God has done. God and his rich grace deserves to be praised and admired and worshipped. Praise and worthy and awe are all we can do. Let me quote to you from Isaiah 55. Behold, I will call a nation that knew not God. Nations that didn't know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God. For the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified his people. Seek you the Lord while he may be found of you. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, for he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For God says, my thoughts, they're not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is always the initiator and the provider of mercy. This is who he is. God is the source. It says, for of him. He is the source of this mercy. He is the agent of the mercy. It is through him. He is the goal. He is the end purpose of this mercy. To him be glory. Forever and ever. Amen. Now Paul turns to his exhortation. Our response to God's mercy now. So Paul is setting this up for us to present ourselves, our bodies as living sacrifices, and he uses the mercies of God to do this. Our response to God's mercy. The word therefore, it looks back to what we've just read. Paul exhorts us, foremost on his mind is the incomprehensible wisdom of God showing mercy to unbelieving sinners. A Christian, more than anything else, is a person who's experienced God's mercy. That's who we are. I've got nothing to boast in. I've got nothing to brag about. I am simply an individual that's received mercy who didn't deserve it. The first thing that Paul wants us to do is to present our bodies. To present. It's a compound word in the original language. It's pronounced, if you care to know, para, which means alongside, and istomy, which means to stand. So present our bodies. It's Completing the exhortation, I am pleading with you. I am alongside, calling out and begging you. 
And the infinitive here, to present, is used as a command. It's not a suggestion. Paul is commanding us in view of all that God has done for you and I. Everything that Christ laid down for for you and I on the cross. What are we supposed to do? We are to present. That word means to stand alongside. So if you look at other passages where this word is used, it means to yield, to submit, to surrender. So present, it literally means that I place myself at God's disposal for whenever and however God wants to use me. This is what you and I need to do, what we ought to do, what we must do because of God's mercy. God, I place myself next to you and I want you to use me however, whenever. My life is not my own. You and I have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are to glorify God with our body. That's what he said, our body. Now, this idea is that that our instruments, our bodies, belong to God for his righteousness. In in Romans 6.13, it says this, Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, the agency that Paul uses this exhortation is through. Let's look at the word by. That means the, the means that God exhorts you and I to present our bodies is by the mercies of God. We are to remember all that God has done for us in his free gift of salvation. We present our bodies, and then he redefines what it means to present our bodies. It's an apposition. It renames what the presenting of our bodies is. What does that actually mean? So Paul uses another phrase, the exact same case endings, to let us know that this is what it means to present our bodies. So now it gets really, really practical. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice. So I bring myself to God. It's an active thing that I do, and it's a surrender. So presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, it's not not some kind of mystical experience that I have. It's not an emotional high. It's not some ethereal thing that I can't really wrap my mind around. It's very, very practical. It's earthly. It's temporal. It's real in time and space. It's God, here I am with all my possessions, all of my faculties, all of my resources, all of the strength and energy of my hand, my ears, my tongue, my eyes. God, they belong to you. It is a living commitment to surrender my life in view of all of God's mercies for me. One of the early Christian church fathers, I can't pronounce his name, so I didn't put it in here, but an early Christian church leader said this, let the eye look on no evil, when he was talking about this verse, let the eye look on no evil, for my eyes are now a living sacrifice. Let my tongue utter nothing that is base or profane. It is an offering to you. Let my ears listen to nothing other than your word, because my ears must be listening to what is only acceptable to you. Let my hands work no sin. It is completely for the Lord, holy unto you. He goes on to say this, but more than this, Suffice not, but besides all this, we must exert ourselves for good. My hands now are not only for refraining from evil, my hands are for giving of alms. My mouth should not only keep what is base to itself, but my mouth now must be giving blessings to others. My ear should not only turn away from what is profane, but my ear must be listening to God. This is my only acceptable worship to God. 
It's called our reasonable worship here. The Greek word for reasonable is logic. Logikia, where we get our English word logic. But I want you to think about under the Levitical system, under the Levitical law, an Israelite was required to bring an animal substitute to the tabernacle. Whatever he could afford, he would present it to the Lord and the entire animal was burned. None of it was for the priest partaking. None of it was for him to partake in. The entire offering was consumed. It was totally the Lord's. This is the idea that Paul is using here. The worship that is acceptable to God was an aroma then when this offering was completely consumed in fire. The word reasonable, like I said, means logic. It means rational. Judaism sacrificed animals, while the Christian doesn't offer up material things, rather that which is real and reasonable and acceptable to God. In verse 2, we have two imperative commands, and they're both in the passive voice, and they're both in the present tense. The first one is a negative command, and when you find a negative command in the original language, it is to stop a habit that you already are practicing. And so Paul starts out with this in verse 2, and do not conform to this world. So if we take it literally, an imperative, in the present tense, the passive voice, so let's just break each one of those down. Do not be conformed. Stop. Stop letting the world. The reason it's in the passive voice is the idea is that the things of this age, the things of this world, they can shape us and they can form us. The word to conform literally means to pour something into a mold and then you have the shape. So we are not to let this world dictate to you and I the way we think. Politically, socially, morally, spiritually. This world has no dictates on the way the church of Jesus Christ should operate. We'd stop listening to the world's message about what the church is. We stop listening to the world's message about what the Christian life is all about. We stop and we listen to God. So this first command literally means stop allowing the pressures around you to fashion you. The passive voice implies that we must resist outside forces, pressures, and popular movements. It's a subtle shift from biblical absolutes to relativism. Now, let's just move on to the word age. I'm using the word age because that's the Greek word. The Greek word is ionos. When we get the word ions, are eons and eons of time. So when Paul tells us don't be conformed to this world, he's not using the Greek word cosmos. The cosmos primarily has to do with the inhabitants or the material world where the word eons has the idea of age or a current generation, a particular time period that we are living in. It denotes a particular generation. As a believer, the New Testament Christians in the book of Acts, you know what they were referred to more than anything else? They were called the way. Because their life was so changed. They were called the way. This is the way they lived. This is the way they operated. In the current age that they lived in, the way that they were going was so profoundly different. 
Christians should not conform to any of the prevailing habits, any of the styles, any of the manners of this world. The people who know God are different. Second, this age also has the idea of an attitude or values. The things that prevail in our culture today are narcissistic. They are self-centered, and we are to repel those as Christians who present our bodies as living sacrifices that are holy to God, that are acceptable to God, which is only our logical form of worshiping God when we consider how wonderful and how awesome and how great His mercy is. The things of this age will quickly lose their luster. That's the third idea of Ionos. It's temporary. And the things of this world, they quickly, quickly lose all their luster. Have you ever gotten a gift and you were so excited and about a week later you kind of forgot all about it? It's not that important. That's the things of this age. The things of Christ. They go deep, they resonate, and they endure, and they're abundant. Stop letting the current age, value systems, pour into your mold what you should be looking like. Now, Paul, and I love when Paul does this, he tells us what not to do, and he doesn't just leave us there. Because if I'm not going to conform to this world, and I'm going to resist that, I need to do what to know what to do on the positive side, don't we? So on the positive side, I need to be transformed. Again, We've got a present tense imperative. It's in the passive voice. First of all, I want to just give you the definition of of the word to transform. You'll be all familiar with it. It's the Greek word metamorphos. And when you think of metamorphos, if you're like me, you think of that ugly, creepy little caterpillar. When we were kids, we would catch caterpillars. And kids probably do it today. I don't know if they don't. Maybe they don't. Maybe they just play with their phones all the time. I don't know. But we used to get a jar. We'd poke holes in the top of that jar. And we'd put a stick in there. We'd put grass in there. And we would wait for that caterpillar to make the cocoon. And then we would wait, and we would wait. And one day, out of that cocoon would come this incredible, beautiful butterfly. That's metamorphosis. And that's what God wants us to do. This word is used over in Matthew chapter 17. And in that passage, it's used as transfigured. Jesus was metamorphosed right before their eyes. Jesus was this lowly carpenter who had no place to lay his head, who looked like a common Galilean beggar. That's who the disciples knew. They went up on that mountain. What did they see? They saw the glorious Christ for all he was. He was metamorphosed right before them. He was shining. He was glorified. He was intense. You couldn't hardly even look upon him. And that's what God desires for the believer. Don't be poured into the mold of this world. Be transformed. Be metamorphosed. Now, Paul tells us how that process is done. The means is simple. It's by the renewing of your mind. Our minds are such a beautiful and powerful tool that God has given us. The Proverbs tells us, as a man thinks in his heart, so will he be. We are told in Philippians to think on the things that are lovely, just, praiseworthy, and virtuous. And those things we are to meditate upon, and the peace of God will be with us. We are what we put into our minds. We really, truly are. You fill your mind with God's Word. You fill your mind with fellowship with other believers and exhorting one another and sharpening one another as iron sharpens one another. You fill your mouth with praise and worship and that's who you will become. 
What we fill ourselves with is what we eventually act out upon. And so Paul says, transform yourselves by the renewing of your mind. That is the means. The Christian religion is radically different from mysticism. I don't just zone out and empty my mind. No, I meditate on the Word of God day and night, and I will be like a river planted by the rivers of water. We will bring forth our fruit in the season, and whatsoever we do, it will prosper. We are not mystics in that sense. The Christian religion is so different in the fact that it's not blind obedience, nor is it slavingly surrendering to a set of rules and rituals and regulations. That's not Christianity. It is a spiritual act where we think upon God's word and we let it transform us from the inside out. That is true Christianity. Now what is the goal? The goal of all this, so now we know what God wants us to do, we know how God wants us to do it, And now let's look at the goal. The goal that you may prove. When you are transforming your mind, God gives you a supernatural ability to prove things, to test them. The Greek word is dakimazo. So let's just stop right here. And let's just do a little word study together. I want you to see how this word is used to prove. So take your New Testament, flip over to Thessalonians with me. We've got a verse in 1 Thessalonians 2.4 where this word is used two times. And I'm not going to point them out. I'm going to see if you can figure out which ones they are. And, and so, one of them will be very, very straightforward. So we're looking at the the word to prove, dakimazo. So when I am transformed, I do this by the renewing of my mind, and here is the goal that I may prove. So what does that word mean to prove? So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 2.4. But as I have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... Even so we speak, not pleasing men, but God who tests our heart. So the first one's pretty obvious, isn't it? Which one is the word to prove? It's the word approved, right? As we have been approved. So in other words, God put Paul through a fire, through testing, to approve him. And how does Paul speak? He speaks not pleasing men, but he speaks in a way that pleases God. Now, who is God? He refers to God as God who tests the heart. That's the second time the dakimazo is used. God is the one who approves us. God is the one who tests us. And we take that thought, that understanding, and we plug it in to Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And so the goal of this transforming mind is so that you and I can approve things. This is approving to God. This is something that God wants me to do so that I can test certain things. I can try them. I can put them in the the fire, and if they don't come through the fire, I don't do them. So God wants to have a renewed mind, transformed thinking, so as believers... We can understand what the will of God is. I believe Christians can know 99% of God's will if they will open up this book. Now, God's will might not tell you which car to buy, what tie to wear, what high heels to put on. That's, that, that's, God doesn't care about a lot of that stuff anyway. You know, he just leaves that up to us. But the real issues of life, God has made it abundantly clear what His will is for your life. And when you delight yourself in God, I promise you, God will then show you what His will is. 
I got to hang out with the youth this morning, and I got to hear a testimony of a man who said, I'm giving my life to God. I don't know what that means. I'm walking away from my business. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what this is going to happen. I have no, no, no clue, God, but here I am, and here's, it's all yours. Now, that young man never dreamed that he would be in the business that he's in today, doing the things that he's doing and having the opportunities that he had. But God's will for his life started out by saying, Lord, here I am. Here's my life. And now, God, I want you to change my thoughts. And I'm going to delight in you, God. I'm going to make you the delight of my heart and the delight of my life. And here's my desires. Now you use them. And he's doing exactly what he wants to do because God has changed his wants. Isn't that a beautiful testimony? So God will help us understand what his will is. That is the final end of this passage. God shows us what his will is. The key is a willing heart and a submission to the authority of God's word. I want to just give us four simple applications from today's teaching. Four things that you and I can do on a daily basis. The first thing that you and I must really understand is that the core of Christian living is complete sacrifice. Watchman Nee wrote a book called The Normal Christian Life. And I would say that probably 90% of American Christianity doesn't get this. We are to be radical. The normal Christian life is denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus for the sake of the gospel. That is the normal Christian life. And that's what Paul is telling us right here. In view of all of God's incredible mercy and kindness and goodness to impute righteousness to you and I, we ought to present ourselves daily to God as a living sacrifice. Our bodies, our faculties are surrendered to the service of God. I like the old hymns because they really said it in a powerful way. The old hymn, At the Cross. One of the verses goes like this. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. That's the core of the Christian life. Second application. The Christian is called upon to use his free will in a responsible way to renew his or her mind daily. The Christian can, through transformation and the yielding of the Holy Spirit, submission to the authority of God's Word, discern what God's will is for his life. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And you need to find Jesus. You need to ask Him to give you an abundant life because what you're living ain't working and you're not happy. You're miserable. I quoted John 10.10 to him. Christ is coming. You might have life and Now, when this young man comes over, my wife kind of scolds me because Patrick, she says, you know, you do have the ability to say, okay, I've got to go now. (laughs) And I hadn't seen my wife, and so finally I just said to him, I said, you know what? You go home and you get out the Gospel of John. That's all I can do is I can point you to Jesus. Now, I'm going to go up and talk to my wife. I haven't seen her all day. And he said, okay. That was pretty easy. Thank you, Tracy. <laughs> so we can know God's will. That wasn't profound. That wasn't mysterious. It wasn't some kind of, well, God, what do I do? Here's, no, I, you just obey. 
And here I am, God, you use me. As a Christian, we must be willing to deny ourselves. We must be willing to take up the cross and follow him. This passage, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, not being conformed to the value system of this current age and be pouring in that mold, by metamorphizing your mind through meditation on God's word, his people, his praise, and his worship, we ought to be so radical. We really should. The Jesus Revolution shouldn't be a movie that we go to. It should be a reality that we are living. We should be radical. We should be humble. We should be alive. And we should be ever-growing. That's the normal Christian life. I pray that that will be the normal Christian life of the people who we gather around what we call North Valley Bible Church. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for Paul's exhortation. It's just as alive and active and powerful and sharper than a double-edged sword as it was 2,000 years ago when he wrote it. God, today, may we prayerfully present ourselves to you living sacrifices complete, holy, our only reasonable form of worshiping you in view of all that you've done for us. God, there's so many pressures to be shaped and to be molded like this world. But God, instead, let us be transformed. Let us live above this world. Let us live on a different plane, a spiritual plane. God, so that we might know what your perfect acceptable will is for our lives. We pray this for your glory. We pray this for your kingdom that we might be an instrument to advance the cause of Jesus and the people around us who desperately need you. We pray this in Jesus' name.